0: It is the sixth episode of MILB.com's, the show before the show of the Minor League Baseball Podcast. My name is Tyler Ron. His name is Jake Siner, and welcome into the show. Howdy, Jake.
2: Hey, Tyler. How we doing? Oh,
0: good, man. How about you? I'm doing very well. Doing very well. It's been a fun week. We've had it's been like a big prospect week. A lot of uh big name guys have done big things this week. Last night, we are recording this on Tuesday. Last night we had walk-offs from both Carlos Correa and Byron Buxton, which is always pretty fun. Uh no, guard has been blowing up. Uh there are guys all over the place. And we also had uh a a former major league veteran hit four guys in a row last night, three of them on three pitches. So it's been a it's been a fun week. <laughs> It's been minor league baseball,
2: and in all the ways that minor league baseball is minor league
0: baseball, I those are the most fun weeks. The most fun <laughs> weeks when it's an all-encompassing minor league baseball thing. Those are the most fun. I weeks.
2: don't. I don't think we had any animals get loose on any field. Fight <laughs> a full. That's true.
0: That is week. true. Unless you have like you know a bear roaming around somewhere, it's not a full minor league week. Yeah, we'll you we'll get there.
2: You smaller critters usually. Usually you hope it's a, <laughs> it's a possum or uh, you know maybe a dog. Bears. I don't think we've had a bear. At least Someday not we're gonna have to I've get.
0: We'll have to get Brett Phillips of the Houston Astros organization on to talk about his encounter with the possum last year. Like it's always like a raccoon, a cat, a dog, <laughs> something like that. But a possum is like a whole other level of like gross and sort of yeah. frightening. One day we'll get the we'll get an expert opinion on how to fight a possum off in the on deck well, so, circle. Well, Phil Brett just ran, didn't he? Yeah, he, he was Brett standing in the on deck circle, out there with a garbage can. He was like, I kind of backed away, I held my bat up as if I was gonna need it, and then we just kind of <laughs> all left the field, and a guy chased it around with a garbage can. <laughs> <laughs> Minor league baseball, everybody. Uh, (laughs) So with that, let's talk about some baseball. We're going to dive right into episode number six of the show before the show. With the first of our three strikes for this episode, Byron Buxton is killing the baseball. And last night, walk-off home run. Had to wait a little while until uh, Kendry Flores of the Jacksonville Suns left the game. Eight shutout innings for him. But then as soon as he did, the Chattanooga Lookouts won it on Byron Buxton's walk-off home run in the bottom of the ninth inning. Uh, He has been phenomenal as of late buxton is the reigning southern league offensive player of the week last week seven games 483 543 828 that's his slash line a couple of doubles four triples five runs batted in 11 runs scored he's been pretty good at baseball
2: yeah he's uh, it's the byron buxton we've been waiting to see i know we talked a couple times on the podcast and i've written on the site how uh when i went down to to fort myers for training i talked to byron buxton and I talked to some people around the Twins, and they acknowledged that he missed most of 2014 with various injuries. He had a wrist issue, he had a concussion, um, really felt kind of rusty in spring training. He said he, his swing didn't really feel like it was where he wanted it to be, and that showed early on. He only hit uh, 190 through his first 15 games. He actually got benched on April 24th, took a day off. Um, since he, he took that day off on the 24th, he's hit safely 9 of 10 games. He's got like all of the extra base hits in that time. Um, Talked to the the hitting coach at Chattanooga, Chet Allen, this week. Mostly talking to him about actually Miguel Sano, who's also uh, kind of coming out of his slump a little bit, though not quite to the, the same extent as, as Buxton. But Allen said that he thought Buxton was settling in. Um, been really impressed just with the way that Buxton kind of keeping his head above water as far as continuing to to work at coming out of the slump. Um, thought maybe he was pressing just a little bit in the early going, but sounds like he's uh, he's settled into uh, being the Byron Buxton we've all come to appreciate. He's also got. Five stolen bases in the last week too. So the you mentioned the four triples. So the wheels are clearly okay. The swing seems to be coming along. Uh, seems like Byron Buxton is uh, right where we probably expected him to be uh, at some point this season.
0: You know what I like, to uh, Doug Mankiewicz, his manager for AA Chattanooga, said uh, after one of his games last week, quote, he's still got a long way to go, but he's getting rewarded for putting good swings on the ball. Hopefully he keeps doing what he's been doing the last week. We're starting to see him relax and just play the game. There's a lot of things. I mean, it's only two sentences. There's a lot of things to like in that. One, I think the focus is still there on his development. It's not just, all right, Buxton's healthy and he's hitting well. Let's you know try to rush him along as quickly as possible. They know what he still needs to work on. And two, I think the comment we're starting to see him relax and just play the game is very telling too because with everything that he went through last year with the injuries throughout the the Florida State League season and then into the Eastern League and then the Arizona Fall League after you go through something like that i imagine that it is very difficult to just be yourself again I would imagine when you get healthy you sort of want to show everybody this is what I can do this is how talented I am I'm back I'm fine but to be able to be you know it's May 5th now for it to be at this point where we're already hearing he's starting to relax and get back to being himself and play the game I think that's really telling and it's really encouraging
2: yeah and that's that's something that we've seen from Buxton a few times now when he started his career in the, in the GCL I think he was 0 for 30 or something like that to start out and it was a similar thing where he just the expectations of being the the number two pick in the draft and coming in um just felt uh was pressing a little bit and trying a little too hard and then once he settled down and kind of let himself play at the the level he can play I think that was a lesson he thought he had learned and you know obviously I think it was to an even greater extent that 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 pressure was there this year coming back from the injuries and you know he's a guy who he, he really did not like being off the field I think that's pretty Evident when you talk to him. He, he likes being there, likes being in the clubhouse, likes being around his teammates, likes competing. I think he kind of needs that. Um, so not, not surprising necessarily that he would press, but something he has overcome a few times uh, in his career. So not surprising to see him overcome it again uh, early early going in this year.
0: Strike two, Jake. Fire away.
2: Yeah, strike two. We got uh, Noah Syndergaard, who, Tyler, I think you wrote about once last week. and uh, We've written about him a couple times. He was a PCL pitcher of the week. Uh, Had two shutout outings last week, both seven innings, struck out 19 guys over 14 innings, just two walks, keeping the ball in the park, and uh, Domain, he called his first start, which I think is the one you wrote about, no, you wrote about the second one, he called first start the best start he's really ever had in his career, Uh, said his fastball command was on a different level, and you talked to uh, a guy who was going to be our guest this week um, in uh, Frank Viola, the pitching coach in Las Vegas, about uh, what was going well with Noah when we can expand on sort of what you you gleaned from that
0: conversation basically it seems like everything is going well for Noah Uh, (laughs) the thing that's crazy about Noah Syndergaard is you hear so much about that power fastball it's 98 99 he can get to that velocity early and he sustains it late in starts but what Frank Viola told me that really I think hit home Noah said in his first of these two starts that got him the PCL Pitcher of the Week award that the fastball was there and he was able to command it and do whatever he wanted with it. But Viola focused a lot on how good his curveball was. He said his curveball was probably, and this is a quote, I'd say the last two games was the most consistent I've seen it since I've met the young man and seen what he possesses. He's been able to throw it over the plate in pretty much any count, and it just makes him totally dominating. That is the level that you need to hit at the upper echelons of the minor leagues in order to be what Noah Syndergaard is. If you command your fastball and you've got a good fastball with life at the lower levels at Class A, either in full season or at advanced Class A, you can succeed in those levels. But you have to have the command of your breaking stuff at the advanced levels to be as good as somebody like Noah Syndergaard is. Over his two starts that netted him the Pacific Coast League Pitcher of the Week award, Two games, one of them a complete game. It was seven innings. Uh, He threw a shutout in that game. That was against Albuquerque in the first game of a doubleheader on the 27th of April. But combined over his 14 innings over two starts, six hits, no runs, zero hit-by pitches, two walks, and 19 strikeouts. The ERA has dipped to 1.66. He struck out 26 in 21 and two-thirds innings. And this is one of the most impressive things. He's pitching in the Pacific Coast League, which is, you know, the Triple A version of the California League. There's a lot of launching pads in that league. He's only given up one home run. So Noah Syndergaard, I mean, he's he's knocking on the door. And one of the other things that I thought was really interesting was it's not just his success, it's the success that the guys around him are having, most notably Steven Matz. And Frank Viola made a comment and said, quote, we've got a little friendly competition building up here amongst ourselves in certain situations people might say it might be the worst thing for an organization but in my opinion I think it's a great scenario because they're pushing each other to be the best they can be they're trying to better each other every time out now Stephen Matz the Mets number three prospect the second round pick back in 2009 so I think a lot of people kind of forget about him but Jake we talked about him uh, I think in last week's episode and so far this year Matz is three and one a 1.84 ERA opponents are batting 184 against him he struck out 31 and 29 and a third, and he's only allowed six runs on 18 hits. So it's not just Cindergard who's succeeding. Mats is there as well. They're kind of 1A and 1B, and they seem to be, according to their pitching coach, challenging each other to get better.
2: Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm interested to, to get your take on this or just to talk about this because I don't know what the heck the Mets do now because I think the – the thing is, is they were hoping that if Syndergaard or Mats got off to such a hot start, and, and I mean, it seems like Syndergaard has legitimately taken a step forward with his command to the point where there's just nothing he's going to accomplish in AAA. You're just wasting bullets. But it's not like you can really take John East or Dylan G or one of those guys out of the rotation right now. The Mets right. rotation has been pitching really well. I I don't know what you... I mean, there's been rumors about trading G for a while now. Maybe that opens up a spot for one of those guys, but interested to see how they handle that just because it's a little different with, with pitchers just because when you have healthy pitchers and you have ones, I mean, Syndergaard, if he pitches like he has the last two starts, he goes to the major leagues and he's essentially a, another ace in that staff or very close to it. He's got a, you know, there other things about being an ace, eating in the innings and everything over full season, but he's, he's producing and he's pitching at that level at least right now. And to waste those bullets in AAA just seems like such a waste. I'm curious how they'll, if they'll try to create space or, or how they'll handle that, or if they just want to see him repeat that at AAA for half a season before deciding that, you know, somebody has to score off of him, so we'll get him to the major, so somebody at least hits him.
0: And, oh, by the way, they're missing Zach Wheeler. <laughs> like, they already right. have all of this pitching. They have so much depth, and they're missing Zach Wheeler, who's out for the season with Tommy Johnson. Right. You Did know, you imagine if he was there, too?
2: Right. You know, it won't be that good all year. That's why you establish that depth is so that, you know, when, when guys do get injured, you, you'll you know these things do tend to figure themselves out, but it seems like the Mets have maybe even put themselves in a position where they are forcing the issue and or having to force the issue because uh, they might not be able to just have these things figure themselves out if everybody stays healthy and keeps pitching as well.
0: All right, Jake. Strike three. One of the guys who popped up in pro- in a uh, stock watch this week, a prospect in the Cincinnati Reds organization, Philip Irvin, center fielder, a first round pick in 2013 out of Samford, and Irvin's off to a great start for Class A Advanced Daytona. A 305, 385, 89 slash line, a 969 OPS. He's homered seven times already in 25 games, 17 runs batted in. Tell us about Irvin's start.
2: Yeah. So when you're you're trying to pick out guys early in the season who might be you know the, the breakout prospects or something you're looking for. What you're, you're really looking for is um, not just advanced numbers or positive numbers, but you're looking for a reason why those numbers might be there and a reason to believe that they're going to continue. I think Irvin, as far as all the hitters in, in minor league baseball so far this year, might be the uh, best candidate for you should believe in, in these numbers. Um, the thing with, with Irvin was drafted, he was a late first-round pick in 2013 out of Sanford, as you mentioned, and he was just outstanding in his half a season after he signed. Hit 331 with nine home runs in 40 or six games between Billings and Dayton. Um, and scouting reports really matched what he was doing offensively. He stole 14 bases. He's probably speed is his best tool, but he has five tools. All five tools are probably average or better. His next best tool is probably the hit tool. He was expected to, to hit for a, a pretty high average, be a guy who had a pretty good approach uh, coming out of a small college. Um, and things really just fell apart for him last year. He had a wrist injury late in 2013, um, I, had to, I had to undergo surgery for that to repair some torn uh, ligaments um, and really just never recovered. He came out in April and hit 207 with no home runs with Dayton last year. Um, and uh, he, the, he sort of downplays the, the effect the wrist injury had on him. The Reds have publicly said they thought the wrist bothered him early. And then what happened was he struggled, and he never really struggled playing baseball before and really just kind of withered under uh, some of that pressure and some of that and just kept trying to press through it. Finished the year, he only hit two thirty seven with seven home runs as a college guy playing in the Class A Midwest League. It um, was a really disappointing season. He kind of fell from a guy who looked like he might be you know, on the cusp of becoming really an elite prospect in the game, and, and I think he fell out of MLB's top 100, definitely fell out of MLB's top 100. Um, really put himself in a position where, where he was in danger of falling off the prospect radar. But this year he's come back. He's healthy. The wrist feels good. He's got his head cleared and he's just been outstanding in the Florida State League. He's hitting 303 through 26 games. He already has seven home runs. That's matching his home run output from last year already in a, in a tough, uh, tough hitter's league. Uh, I talked to him and I talked to his hitting coach, Kevin Mayhar, earlier today, actually, and the thing they said is it really is just all a mental thing. His, his head is a little more clear. Uh, Mayhar used words like calm and, and rhythm, talked about how he's staying inside the baseball and trying to use the whole field. One thing he did when he was pressing a little bit last year was he's getting a little too pool-happy. Um, seems like that's something he's corrected. He's hitting the ball up the middle a little bit more. His power is still mostly to the pool side. But uh, you talk about Cincinnati as an organization that is sort of up in the air as far as its long-term future. Are they going to go into a full rebuild? Are they going to just try to retool? How are they going to sort of handle that? And are they pitchers with contracts that are expiring soon, Cueto and some other guys? Um, If Irvin is the prospect that he could be based on his tools, if he keeps hitting like this the whole year, that's an impact guy that could get to the majors pretty quickly, and that's the kind of thing that can change your long-term plans as an organization, as much as any one kind of player can. uh, A guy who can play center field and hit and hit for power, that's, that's the kind of guy you can build around, and Irvin has that kind of potential which would be a real still considering he was the 27th pick in the, the 13 draft. So that's, that's got to be encouraging if you're a Reds fan, and something you can kind of buy into just based on the, the mix of the numbers and the scouting reports so far.
0: And a guy who hits for power, as Jake said, a five eighty nine slugging percentage through his first 25 games this season. He played today as well, uh, but doesn't strike out a ton. So far, 25 games, he struck out 18 times, but he's also walked 12 times. That's an encouraging sign, too, for a guy who has a lot of tools to put into a very valuable spot playing up the middle and center field.
2: Yeah, this was this was the best case that the Reds were kind of hoping for when they made that pick, was that he would be this kind of guy. And aside from a, a lost 2014 season where he was injured and um, I think did some learning just on, on overcoming failure and things like that, um, he's been that guy in pro ball in 2014, so that's that's looking very encouraging for Cincinnati right now.
0: The Reds have uh, a lot of fun pieces coming up too, and Philip Irvin is one of those guys in the mix. And uh, one of our other topics here from Three Strikes today is going to be a heavy topic for our guest in episode number six of milb.coms, the show before the show. Las Vegas 51's pitching coach, Sweet Music Frank Viola, joins us next to talk about some of these top prospects coming up in the Mets organization. <laughs> really excited for our next guest and i know that uh, a whole lot of mets fans are going to be excited as well as frank viola joins us from the las vegas 51 triple a pitching coach and of course you all remember him as sweet music welcome to the show frank how are you I'm doing well, thank you. Appreciate it. So it's uh, obviously a very exciting staff for you to have as a pitching coach for this team uh, in Las Vegas. And we're going to talk a lot about the guys that you've already had come through and the guys who are on that staff right now. But let's start things off with Noah Sindergaard because he's the reigning PCL Pitcher of the Week, uh, top prospect in the organization. He's been outstanding. And you and I talked uh, over the weekend, and I know in Noah's start two times ago, he said his fastball command felt better than ever. You said the last two starts his curveball command has looked better than ever. Tell us about just how he has been exceeding these last two starts, pretty much everything that he's done up until now, which seems like it would be virtually impossible to do. But how has that mix being able to command everything kind of pushed him over the top?
1: Well, I think it all starts with uh, confidence. You know, last year was a major learning experience for Noah. It was the first time he really struggled in his career. And then you add that to the Pacific Coast League, which is by far one of the best hitters ballparks in in, in the game of baseball today. You know, so he learned a lot last year, and instead of crying about it over the off season, he said, "You know what? I'm going to do something about it." He came into spring training with with a newfound maturity. Uh, He has since then just taken off, and as you mentioned, you know, his curveball has been great, his fastball has been great, his changeup is improving. Everything about his game has gotten better, but it all starts with maturity. You know, saying, hey, I've learned from my mistakes. I'm going to go from, I'm going to go on from there. I'm not going to feel sorry for myself. And he's gone out and his work ethic has improved. Uh, everything about him has improved to make him a better, more complete pitcher. And it's showing now. I only see, con- I still see continuing improvement over him. And when he does get called to the big leagues, be it tomorrow, be it in a few months, whatever the case may be, he's not only going to be ready, but he's going to take charge and be dominating up there.
2: Yeah, you talk about the, the confidence and the maturity, and I'm curious just how that affects, uh, obviously there's things to work on, but what he has been working on. You mentioned the fastball command, improving command of all the pitches. Is that something where mechanically he is being a little more consistent? Is that a, a reflection of the work he's putting in, or what's kind of leading to that improved fastball command? Well,
1: there's no question. It's repeating your delivery. That that is first and foremost. You're correct. You're you're totally right in that regard. You know, when you're able to repeat your arm slot and throw all three pitches off that arm slot, it makes it almost virtually impossible for a hitter to to know what's coming. And then you add a 98 miles an hour to that factor. It's like it's unfair when he gets on top and throws the curveball like he's supposed to. When he throws a changeup like he's supposed to. When he locates his fastball like we talked about earlier. You know, it, it, he's just so different from any other, from 98% of other pitchers out there. You just don't have guys' gift of 98 miles an hour being able to use the other secondary pitches off of that. That's his biggest benefactor. But then when you add that to the work ethic, the side work he puts in, the, uh, the stuff that. You know, a lot of people don't see because not at the ballpark. They just see the the, the final verdict where he's out in the mound throwing the hitters. It's everything leading up to, and that's where he has totally improved his total game and that's why he's at the point he's at right now.
0: Frank, tell us a little bit about Steven Matz, too, because this, you know, staff, you basically have what could potentially be eventually a couple of major league number ones or number one and number two, and they're anchoring right now this, this Las Vegas staff. And Matz, I think some people had forgotten about over the last few years because he was drafted, you know, six years ago now, but he's really on the precipice of pretty big things. For people who might not be as familiar with him as Syndergaard, tell us a little bit about what he's done so far.
1: Well, Stevens, a left-hander out of uh, out of New York, and as you mentioned, he got drafted out of high school. He was the Mets' third rounder, and then he came up with Tommy. And he needed Tommy John surgery within a few months of being signed. He had some complications from it. Long story short, he missed a couple of years of baseball. Came back a few years ago, started in the South Atlantic League in Savannah, and has gradually gone up the ladder. And each year removed from the Tommy John surgery and more confident in his ability to be able to throw his fastball and all this stuff without fear of injury, his career has taken off. We're talking a, a left handed pitcher who throws anywhere from ninety three to ninety six miles an hour with a ever improving curveball and a plus change up. You know, so we're talking about a lefty righty combo and Steven Matz and Noah Synagogue, as you mentioned, are one one eighth number two starters in most any team in baseball down the line. So it's really been fun being here, working with these kids, seeing them push each other. I mentioned earlier, we we did an interview with MILB last weekend, and we talked about the friendly competition that's building up between Noah and and Stephen. Each time out, they want to better each other. And when you try doing that and, and you have somebody to push like that, it only makes both of you better if you take it in the right, in the right regard. They're doing it that way. They're making themselves better. They're improving every day. And we talked about Noah being ready. When Steven gets the call, he too will be ready. And both of them are going to have long major league careers.
2: Yeah, there was uh, uh, Wally Backman, the manager there at Las Vegas, made some headlines, at least in, in our circles, over the off season when he actually said he preferred Steven Matz as a prospect to Noah Syndergaard. And obviously he thinks – very highly of both. I don't want to necessarily put you on the spot and make you pick one going forward, but I'm wondering if you can But you're going to put
1: of... me on the spot, aren't you? <laughs>
2: <I'll> <laughs> Go ahead. We'll just ask you to kind of compare and contrast where they are from a, a polished standpoint and a stuff standpoint and kind of what the, the strengths of each are, maybe compared to each other. You
1: know what? If I, if I have some common sense, I'd probably take the fifth and let, and let, let the fans <laughs> uh, decide who's better. But I will do this. I'll be I'll be diplomatic. Noah has probably a little more experience from the, fact that he, from the fact that he's played in the Pacific Coast League, which, as I mentioned earlier, is a hitter's league. You learn so much about yourself when you are out of control of some elements. I think that helps him. Where Steven comes into play is from his injury past, all he had to work through to get back to where he's at right now makes him appreciate everything that much more. Work ethic, they're both comparable. Stuff-wise, honestly, they're both comparable. It's going to be, I I think, the telltale sign of who do you want over the other. It would be, do you prefer a lefty today versus a righty today? I mean, honestly, they are that close in talent, that close in ability. I have absolutely zero complaints about either one with their work ethic, with their approach, with the way they are as teammates. I mean, I can go on and on and just rave about both of these kids because they're both very, very professional in what they do. And they're both so young. It's really been a lot of fun. And I'll tell you what, guys. It keeps me young, too, enjoying what they're doing,
0: Frank, let's talk a little bit about uh, the PCL and what it's like for you as a pitching coach there because so many people would think that's kind of where you know sending young prospects would be uh, the biggest challenge, either there or the California League. Uh, these guys have done a really good job in not being phased by that so far. I mean, I know already this season combined between the two of them, uh, Noah and Steven have only allowed one home run in the PCL in Las Vegas, which is a hitter's ballpark. The wind blows out. It does so at a lot of ballparks there. But what's it like preparing guys for that challenge of pitching in a whole lot of hitters ballparks as you kind of alluded to earlier
1: well first of all i'll say it's still early in the year so i don't want to jinx it too bad but <laughs> don't, the, the, honestly the big thing about the pacific coast league is not to make a big deal about the pacific coast league when you're talking about pitching it doesn't change who you are what you are you have got to command the strike zone you have got to attack it you got to get a head strike one to be able to pitch and throw your game When you're behind, and I don't care if it's any ballpark, if you're behind 102 constantly, you're going to get hurt. The big thing Steven and Noah, just because we're talking about them, have done early in the season is they're attacking the strike zone down in the zone. And when you have – when you throw quality pitches down in the zone, it's very tough for hitters to lift those pitches. So when they do make a mistake, they make a mistake on ground balls, you know, seeing eye hit, balls down the line, what have you. It's tough to lift those pitches. And then when you're able to establish the fastball down in the zone, you can get away with the curveball and change up maybe up in the zone every once in a while because it, it, it's changed to hit his eyes, and it's very difficult for them to make that adjustment when you're talk, talking about two guys that go mid to upper 90s. So I think that was that's the big thing. I preach get ahead, strike one, do not give them free passes because if you give them free passes, that's when the big innings occur, and there are a lot of big innings that occur in the Pacific Coast because you're walking the leadoff hitter, and, and that's my biggest pet peeve, and the guys have really done a great job at least early on in the season, especially over these last two weeks when we've won 12 in a row of uh, 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 negating the walks.
2: Yeah, that was I wanted to ask sort of about that. When we talked to Steven Matz after one of his recent starts, he said one thing that you had instructed him was to work more off the fastball. He thought he was getting a little too off-speed, happy, early in counts. I'm just curious, in general, with, with pitchers in the PCL, if that's something that, that happens maybe because of lack of, of confidence or just concerns over what's going to happen if a ball gets in the air, if that's a, a common have, thing and just how you get pitchers kind of over that.
1: Absolutely. No question. What you do, what you find yourselves doing is uh, trying to pitch away from contact. And when you start pitching away from contact, at times you get away from your strengths. Like say we have a book on a, you know, uh, I'm just going to throw a name out there, John Singleton of Fresno. Now he's a dead fastball hitter, but your your strength is a a fastball. So do you get away from your fastball because he's a a dead fastball hitter? No, you got to go strength versus strength. So what you've got to do is you have to establish in your head and you have to game plan it with your catcher. Like, hey, my best pitch is my fastball. This is the pitch I have to establish, and I throw all my pitches off. And that's similar to what we talked about with Steve. You know, It's so much easier said than done. When you get into the heat of the moment, you really need to have a catcher that really stays with you and explains to you the game plan, sticks to the game plan, so you guys both can build up confidence in each other to so know that, what hey, I'm in the spot. I'm not going to run away from contact. I'm going to challenge that contact with my best pitch, my fastball.
0: He is Frank Viola, the pitching coach of the AAA Las Vegas 51s, affiliate of the New York Mets. And from our standpoint, too, Frank, it's so good to see you doing well. Open heart surgery last year, but it's great to see you back and and having fun. And uh, enjoy this staff for as long as you have these guys. They've been a a heck of a lot of fun for us to watch, as I'm sure it has been for you. And uh, best of luck the rest of the way this year.
1: Great talking to you guys. I appreciate it very much.
0: Big thanks to Frank Viola for talking to us about uh, some of the next wave of Mets stud pitching prospects. As if we haven't heard enough about that over the last five years, there's a lot more of them on the way. So if you're a Mets fan, get excited because it could be a very fun run for you. Watching guys who are just blowing away radar guns and uh, and hopefully staying healthy here over the next few years. Uh, with a lot of talent coming up in that system, kind of similar to another system that we've heard so much about going into, especially this 2015 season, and that's the Chicago Cubs. And one of their top prospects has made headlines over the last couple of weeks for his shift. Enroll, and, and for this week's edition of Things I Read, we're going to bring in our good pal Sam Dykstra of MILB. dot Welcome back, Sam. How are you? Good. Good. Uh, happy to be back. So, tell us about uh, Carl Edwards Jr. People may know him as CJ Edwards, but he's going by Carl Edwards Jr. now and has shifted to the bullpen for twenty fifteen. CJ slash Carl, he's an interesting case because a ton of talent. Not the biggest major league style build and, in fact, has a nickname that sort of alludes to that and some of the questions that people have about where he'll stick as a pitcher going forward in his career. But tell us about what you learned about Edwards and his move to relief this season for AA Tennessee.
4: Yeah, well, there's a whole lot of things going on there in uh, his move to reliever. One of them you kind of touched on there is his kind of build. Um, He's 6'3", 170, at least listed at 170. Um, and that gives him the nickname String Bean Slinger, um, which is something he's had, I think, from his time, you know, all the way going back to South Carolina.
0: You know, and we don't live in a good nickname era in the world. Like everybody's like first initial, first syllable, last name. String Bean Slinger is one hell of a good nickname. Yeah, and we're doing that, we're very, we're much, we're much like
2: we're a pretty good podcast for this stuff. Four is a pretty good one too on
4: Syndergaard. <laughs> and it, the good thing is they're embracing it too. Like Edwards, his Twitter handle, I think, is C Edwards SBS um so that you know he's at least buying into it um but yeah with a guy like that um you don't know how many innings he's going to handle going forward uh at least you know durability wise he did have some injury problems last year that limited him a little bit so to start the year the cubs sent him back to double a tennessee and they they said we're going to try something new with you we're going to try you in relief which is something he hasn't done yet as a pro um and there's a couple reasons for that one Is durability, you know, maybe going forward they don't know if he's going to be a starter long term. So let's try to get him into that role now. Two, you know, they're going to be limiting his innings this way. So if he's only throwing two innings, three innings at a time now as a reliever, he'll he'll be stronger and ready to take on more innings potentially in you know August, September if they decide they're going to move him to the starter role. And three, that may just be where his major league uh, future is. You know, he's got the stuff. He's got. I think it was MLB.com gave him a 60 grade fastball. Um, he's got that just kind of electric stuff for a wiry guy. Um, and he, when I talked to him last week, he talked about how he adds two to three miles an hour to what was already a very good fastball in those shorter stints. So um, that's something that he's kind of embraced. Uh, you know, he's seen what's happened to Addison Russell, you know, who moved to second base so he can move to the majors. Uh, Chris Bryant. Played center field, which is something we had never seen him do, or he had never done in, even in spring training. They tried him out in left, never mind center. Uh, Kyle Schwarber's a guy who came in as a catcher, but they've tried him out a little bit at outfield last year. Um, so the Cubs value versatility, and he's seen that, and he knows the route to Wrigley might be through relief. So he's going to buy into that for now, and you know after some bumps in the road in the beginning, there he uh, he had some control issues. I know. I think it, in his first five outings, he walked two guys out of, in each one of those outings yeah, he had 10 walks in his first five appearances um so that maybe playing up with that stuff a little bit has lot uh forced him to lose a little bit of his control um but you know that's the thing he's harnessing I know you talked to him the other day after he got his first professional save um two no hit innings no walks two strikeouts that that's the kind of C.J. Edwards we saw in him as a starter in the ranger system and you know also a little bit uh, two years ago in Daytona and then last year in Tennessee. So, yeah, this will be something to keep a tabs on. I really don't think the Cubs know what they're going to do with him next. They, if they if he continues to pitch like he did the other day and getting that save, maybe they decide, you know what, yeah, he is best as a reliever and we're just going to keep him there. Um, but maybe they decide, you know, we'll give you back your starters innings and just see if we can get the most impact out of you there. So for right now, it's very – interesting thing to keep a tabs on at least he's improving he hasn't allowed an earned run in three of his last four appearances after the first two rough outings to start the year um so yeah something we'll keep an eye on as it goes along.
0: you know and it seemed like he embraced the 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 mental approach of closing he said after that start quote, it's something I can see myself doing now, forever, or just whenever they think. And a lot of guys, I think, get thrown into that, especially they've been starting for their entire careers, they get thrown into it and sometimes don't really know how to adjust because they don't have the routine of getting ready the same way they do every time out. But he is a kid who is very mature. I think that's what probably strikes the Cubs in a way that they feel they can move him is that it doesn't seem like anything like that is going to beat him. He talked about the energy of that moment and said he really had to take some deeper breaths to calm himself down. But that's something that I think the Cubs really see in a lot of these guys. I mean, Chris Bryant's kind of the same way, even though, you know, his future may be at one spot, he has the maturity and he has the ability to be tried out somewhere else. And the Cubs don't worry about doing that with guys. And a lot of organizations that have been very successful with their top talent have done that. The St. Louis Cardinals, I wrote the uh, the organization All-Star story for them last year, and it was like every guy we named as an All-Star came into the organization at a different position. So a lot of teams are really starting to try this out, and I think that's one thing where Edwards really hits is his maturity level.
4: Yeah, and you kind of touched on it there in terms of um, – you know Edwards is one of my favorite interviews in the minors um, just because I think he understands um, every kind of moment he's in. We're talking about a guy who was drafted in the 48th round back in 2011. That round doesn't even exist anymore. I mean, I did a pretty cool story when we gave him the Milby Award two years ago. Of just, you know, a guy that was, you know, in the deep parts of South Carolina had to be found by a scout. And just in the 48th round, he just turned to the Rangers and said, you know, let's just take a chance on it, see what happens. And uh, he was a guy, you know, as a kid, he was playing against adults. And I think he understands that, you know, his origins and where he's come from. And, you know, he wasn't even if the draft existed today, he wouldn't be taken. Um, so he knows if he has a chance to get to the majors and if it's in relief, he's going to take it and he's going to buy in immediately. And it helps to know that the Cubs know what they're doing. I mean, they've showed that they've handled the farm very well the past couple of years. We're getting to see the fruits of that labor now. Um, so I think that helps everybody in the organization. And Edwards, like I said, has kind of bought into that.
2: So how much do you think the, the move to move him to the bullpen, obviously that potentially gets him on a faster track to the majors, how much do you think of that as fueled – Uh, just by the fact that the Cubs came into the season thinking they might be in a position to compete at some and when you're competing you kind of need all the the effective bullpen arms you can need how much of it is about that and how much of it is just about trying to figure out what's really going to be best for uh, Carl's career do you think
4: um I think uh, kind of said it before too that there's just so many different things that that are going on to it I don't think it was just one reason over another um I think it helps that you know he's I think he's on the forty-man roster now, so he's definitely a potential call-up in September. And if they're competing, he's definitely an arm you would like to get, you know, an inning out of here and there. And uh, um, you would, like I said before, they wouldn't have to worry about his innings running up if they're controlling it very well now. Um, but yeah, I think between you know your, the worry about, uh, I think it was a shoulder injury he had last year, the problems mm-hmm. he was dealing with there. Um, there's just so many things they had to balance with him coming into this year that if they were just giving him six inning starts now, they were going to worry by the time it got to August about okay we have to cut his season short. Now let's limit it. Now we'll we'll um, take the benefits later. And a major league you know a job in the bullpen come August September is definitely in the cards now.
0: He is Sam Dykstra. You can give him a follow on Twitter, at Sam Dykstra, M-I-L-B. Earlier today, retweeted the Delmarva Shorebirds, who are starting Sebastian Darth Vader today. And Sam very astutely said, that's just way too easy for Star Wars Day. That's a fantastic job by Delmarva.
4: I I wish I had Ben's pun ability. I guess. It (laughs) just did not come to me immediately of what I was trying to come up with. Um, I was hoping they would become like the Millennium Shorebirds or something. (laughs) You know, playoff. <laughs> I could, that that was the best my mind could do yesterday. I didn't have enough Jedi mind tricks in the bag. I just mind.
0: really hope the coaching staff structured the rotation so it would land that way.
2: Oh, you. you we can only hope. <laughs> we can only hope. Fire <laughs> development is the most important thing in the minor leagues, except and for also system. Star They're Wars night <laughs> on giveaway days. Yeah,
4: and I hope they had a few rainouts too that they just factored in anyways. Something like that.
0: Sam, thanks, man. Uh, thank you. Talk soon. Continuing along our jaunt through. Our minor league baseball cohorts, Jake Seiner and I, get to welcome in another good pal of ours, Benjamin Hill, for our Ben's Biz Banter segment of this week's show. Howdy, Ben. Howdy, Tyler. You're the second person I've greeted with howdy, like this is an 1860s show about the railroad. Howdy, Ben. You just decided we're going with the Ben's Biz Banter. (laughs) I know, I just unilaterally made that call now. No,
3: I like it. This is a (laughs) dictatorship. (laughs)
0: Ben, we're uh we're gonna dive into crooked numbers is back for 2015 which has been one of my favorite things on milb.com since i started working in the minor leagues in 2009 i love crooked numbers but there was actually a crooked numbers-esque thing that did not make it into this week's edition because it just happened last night in the pacific coast league pat mish of the uh new orleans zephyrs drilled four oklahoma city batters in a row to open the game all in one inning and set like a slew of PCL records. Tell us about what happened last night.
3: Yeah, well, first I do want to give a little context of what a crooked number is for uh, those listening at home, which is all the weird stuff that happens on the field in minor league baseball. Which is a lot of it. A lot of it. I mean, obviously, uh, or, or hope maybe not obviously, but most of what I write about is, you know, the promotions and the game operations and the um, the culture of minor league baseball and the ballparks themselves. Um so I don't get to write about games too often but this has always been kind of a labor of love for mine of mine uh crooked numbers just finding the real weird stuff and it was kind of inspired by I think going back to being a kid when Jason Stark was still writing in the Philadelphia Inquirer and uh I would read his uh Sunday columns and just kind of obsess over that weirdness and so I love being able to bring that to the minors, and when weird stuff happens I try to be all over it and uh this month I had a little help from our colleague Ash Marshall to find as much weirdness as possible. And uh yeah, Pat Mish just last night. He uh did not mish opposing batsmen. <laughs> he hit four in a row to start the game and uh no PCL pitcher this is a 112 year old league has ever hit four batters in a game, let alone to start a game. And uh he went on to hit five batters and no PCL pitcher, you know, obviously ever hit five batters. In fact, no team has hit more than five batters. He tied the all-time PCL team record for hit batters just uh, by himself last night, and the last time that a PCL team hit five batters was a decade to the day from when Pat Misch did it yesterday. That is so bizarre. May 4th, 2005, the, it happened to uh, Salt Lake Stingers against the Portland Beavers, and uh, 10 years to the day, we wait until five PCL batters are hitting a game, courtesy of Pat Mish. Which is very
0: ironic. The last name is I wanted to use Hit by Mish last night for uh when we had the trending topics box on mylb.com. dot com. I was in charge of that. Wanted to use Hit by Mish and then I was like, you know, Pat Mish probably doesn't feel real great. He probably wouldn't look at that and laugh at it. But it's like the name fits so perfectly for this.
3: Yeah. Wait, do you write articles to make sure the players don't have their feelings hurt <laughs> by the headlines? <laughs> Just, Just sure. assuming
0: that Pat Mish will look at trending topics and go, Oh, that's not nice.
3: <laughs> yeah you can't you can't take the players into account that that would be a mission impossible man.
2: yeah no we had we had some good stuff in the last week we had a, a team get 19 hits and they were all singles but then i actually wanted to ask you about the legend of mike mccoy is how it's still growing out in the west you can tell us what he did uh last month that, that made him so notable
3: yeah well one thing about crooked numbers is always go for the uh, position players pitching. That's just a uh, very regular recurring feature of the column, and it happens a lot more in the minor leagues than it does in the majors. Um, bullpens just they just run out of guys, and managers aren't about to you know, have somebody's arm fall off just so he can pitch seven innings in an 18-inning game. So you inevitably have these uh, position players coming in, and then when you get to kind of career minor leaguers or kind of guys who bounce all around, you find guys like Mike McCoy, who's 34 years old, and he pitched on April 10th. He pitched an inning for the El Paso Chihuahuas. So McCoy, McCoy is an outfielder. He's an outfielder, yes. Thank you yes. very much. That's crucial to the story. <laughs> so Mike McCoy, 34-year-old guy, a journeyman, been around all around minor league baseball, spent some time in the majors as well. So I saw that he pitched an inning. You know, he's an outfielder. He came in, pitched an inning, and I just wanted to look up like, hey, has he done this before? And he has pitched eight and two-third innings over a span of 12 seasons with six teams in five different leagues. So he is a position player who has taken the mound for the first time way back with the Peoria Chiefs in 2004 and then Palm Beach and then Colorado Springs and in the majors with the Toronto Blue Jays and then with the Buffalo Bisons and now with the El Paso Chihuahuas. And if that's not a deeply American story, outside of pitching for Toronto. I don't know what is, but he's, uh, he's bounced around all over the place.
0: The uh, the versatility that guys have to have. And, like, you know, I'm sure somebody looked at him and was like, you know, at least if we, if we get in a jam, we got McCoy here. Somebody in his career has thought about that.
3: Oh, without a doubt. And uh, I don't think that's what's keeping him on a roster, but it's just one more ace up his sleeve. And I think, um, you know, in the minors, sometimes people can be automatically critical of the guys who are in their mid 30s. Like, ah, what's he still hanging around for? And it's maybe because you love playing baseball and you can make a living at it and you just can go all over the country doing these things. And uh, I like the stories of a guy like Mike McCoy, you know, doing this in El Paso.
2: Yeah, and he sticks around because nobody cares if he gets hurt pitching either.
3: Yeah, that's that's <laughs> true. No one's going to lose their job if Mike McCoy probably goes on the DL as opposed to a le- legit pitching prospect who stayed in a few too many innings uh, during an extra inning game. But there's a lot of absurdity in the minors with uh, position players pitching. Basically, any time you get to, I'd say, and Tyler, you know as well as I do, having called games, but I think once you get to the 14th inning, 15th maybe of a minor league game, it's just like... When are those position players coming in and uh, taking the mound? It's just inevitable, it seems like.
0: It's almost like everybody talks about, you know, international baseball has tiebreaker rules. The WBC, the Olympics have had tiebreaker rules. And the minors, it's basically just put a position player on the mound. That'll break the tie almost instantly. (laughs) Uh, Ben, tell us a little bit about some of the the rest of the stuff at crooked numbers. We had uh, a very weird game uh, on April 18th. Speaking of position players pitching in the PCL, a catcher for the Salt Lake Bees, Charlie Cutler, came in to pitch with a three-run lead promptly loaded the bases and gave up a walk-off grand slam in the bottom of the 18th. We had a no-hitter that a team lost in West Virginia, which is the first time that has happened since 2008. There's a ton of other good stuff in crooked numbers this week.
3: Yeah, it goes all over the place. You can just go on and on and on. Um, yeah, one thing about that no-hitter is the Virginia Power. Um, they, three guys combined to pitch a no-hitter, and the West Virginia Power still lost the game one to nothing in um, doing a little – well, not research on that, but in looking at that, it, it occurred to me that that is, I think, the weakest no-hitter you could possibly have <laughs> in that it was a combined no-hitter, which, you know, yeah, waters it down. See. It was a seven-inning game, which waters it yeah. down further, and the team that pitched the no-hitter lost. <laughs> I really don't think you could potentially that is true. Have a no-hitter that's worse across the board than what the West Virginia Power accomplished on April 15th against the Hagerstown Suns. But you know what? They were still they still pitched a no hitter in some way, some form, in a professional game. It's it's
2: amazing Ben managed to say all that. He was making the Michaela Moroney face the entire time.
3: <laughs> but then I thought so about unimpressed. It. still a little impressed because I still this is still professional. And if you can say, hey, I was involved in no hitter in a professional context. That's more than almost anyone can say. So, he is Benjamin like, Hill.
0: He is our promotions guru. He is our cricket numbers guru and he's a he's a good man
3: as well. Thanks, man. Hey, thank you.
0: Segment of the show for episode number six of the minor league baseball podcast the show before the show tyler mon jake signer with you and getting set to wrap things up uh we're hoping within uh possibly next week to catch up with top prospect overall in the entirety of the game According to MLB.com, Byron Buxton of the Chattanooga Lookouts, who, uh, as we mentioned earlier in the show, reigning Southern League Player of the Week. Hoping to catch up with Byron next week. And uh, there are also always a ton of top prospects on TV MILB.tv. MLB.tv. Jake, who's coming up later on in the week?
2: Yeah, we got our, our, our matchup of the week for on Thursday. Uh, if you can get TV at the office. Uh, man who we've talked about a few times already today, Noah Syndergaard, is going to be making a 105 start with Las Vegas at Albuquerque is going to be a uh, – Albuquerque's got a pretty good feed. That'll be some must-watch TV.
0: And I believe as well that he could be going – against John Gray. They matched up in the rotation in that game that Syndergaard dominated in the complete game shutout seven innings on April 27th. So if that's the case, John Gray, the top Rockies prospect, has had a a very rough season so far, but actually threw pretty well his last time out. Five innings, only gave up two runs, so keep an eye out for that possible matchup as well. Uh, Albuquerque has not announced probables for that game, but keep an eye out because that could be a lot of fun. That's going to wrap it up for episode number six of MILB.com is the show before the show podcast. Give us a follow on Twitter. Jake is at Jake underscore signer. I'm at Tyler Mon. Of course, you can follow MILB at MILB. Like us on Facebook. And for the podcast as well, you can subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. You can also check us out on the website at MILB.com. And uh, that'll do it for episode number six. Thanks, Jake. I'm going to sign off with a howdy, a big howdy.
4: howdy Howdyos,
0: Tyler. Talk to you guys next week.